Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. This is episode number 12. On this show, it's my job to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. And I have no doubt if you're inclined to read articles on places like LinkedIn, HBR or anywhere else that discusses leadership, that you've noticed that one of the boom issues across this fine discipline is resilience. And for a while now, I've been wondering why. Is it for real? Is the attention it's getting really justified? Is it a fad concocted by consultants selling well-being programs? Or is there something to it? Is there a legitimate reason it's burst onto the scene screaming and demanding our attention? Today's guest will answer all those questions and more. Stacey Copas is a keynote speaker, coach, author, and resilience consultant, and she is in some seriously high demand. Known for her direct and practical approach, Stacey works with CEOs, elite sportsmen, charitable foundations, entire organizations, and leaders at every level. She has built a thriving business based on the concept that one of the key ingredients to success in any industry is being able to turn adversity into opportunity. While some of us are trampled, deflated, and give up in the face of hard times, others seem to thrive, managing to extract something positive from the negative. The difference, of course, is resilience. And if you think that all sounds like a fairy tale, that mindset of seeing negative events as an opportunity to grow and move on to bigger and better things, you should probably know that Stacy is a quadriplegic. And while she's been through some tough times, she now says that that accident she had as a 12-year-old is the best thing that's happened in her life. Among many other things, it's given her clarity of purpose. Stacy's mission is to bring awareness of resilience to the world. She wants people to know that, like any skill, resilience can be developed, and she wants to teach us how to do it. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Stacey Copas. Stacey, welcome to the Team Guru podcast. It's so nice to have you on the show. Pleasure to be here. Thanks, Dave. Stacey, as you know, I was at your book launch last night, How to Be Resilient. And I have to say, when the invitation arrived in my inbox, I couldn't have been more thrilled. Resilience in leadership is the hot topic of the day. And I've been trying to track down just the right person to have on the show to tell me why. Look, the timing has been completely perfect. And I'm a huge believer that when we're looking for something, we, we find it at the right time. So I'm so glad that it's worked out brilliantly for you. Well, it has worked out brilliantly for me because as I said, I've been trying to find just the right person. And when I saw the title of your book and I knew you were coming to Brisbane and we could have this meeting, I was absolutely thrilled. I do want to know, why do you think that resilience has become the hot topic? From what I'm seeing from working with different clients and, and also just my own reading, it's always good to see what, what sort of stuff's coming up. I work with a lot of leaders. So I work with a lot of CEOs, a lot of um, executives, a lot of business leaders. So just having conversations with them, the biggest thing that I'm finding is is that the way of the world today, the pace of change has never been faster. 
Um, there's you know, technology, there's disruption, there's economic challenges. So people have to be constantly making change to be just to survive, um, but also just to to be innovative, to to be different. Um, so the pace of change is probably the biggest thing. I think also to what we're seeing a lot is that there's a lot of extra pressure in the workplace. People are being expected to do more with less. Um, and obviously there's business decisions that mean that uh, the, the size of teams is reducing all the time and people have to do more with less. People are working much longer hours and also as a consequence, uh, their health and their, their relationships are suffering. So there's certainly been a recognition now that there needs to be some work on how to be able to equip people to be able to do that and also be able to make good decisions, but also to be effective and to not be burnt out by the process. You're absolutely right. You know, it is so easy to argue, and it's a tortured phrase, one that I've heard you use, that we are living in a great time of change. At a personal level, divorce rates have never been higher. Scrutiny around body, body image and personal presentation is high. We're increasingly overweight as a nation, yet we know more about the stuff that's killing us, the stuff that we happen to be addicted to as a society. At an organisational level, disruptions to industry falling commodity prices, restructures by the dozen, redundancies, a trend away from full-time employment to casual or contracting. And at a national and global level, environmental concerns, apparent increases in natural disasters, perpetual war in foreign land, and the fear of terrorism on our own shores. So it seems like the right time for this to be the hot topic. Absolutely. And, and as, you, as you touched on there, it's it's not just in the workplace, it's everything that comes around us. And I think that another reason that it's become more apparent is we live in a 24-7 um, media culture. So we are constantly bombarded everywhere we look. Um, I know personally, I, I don't know how many times a day I check my emails or I don't watch the news, I don't read a newspaper. But by just scanning Twitter a couple of times a day, I'm still getting all of those those stories about the bad you know, news the stories. bad news the bad news and, and that's the thing is it's like I, I do try to filter that out but ultimately it, it's a big thing and, and it's interesting that you say you know we've never had so much more so much information about what we need to do we've never been so educated yet we still make poor decisions um, and that's an interesting thing that I, you know I, I touch on a lot is that people they hear something and they go I know that and they, they just disregarded it rather than going, okay, am I actually doing that? And that's the challenge I like to put to people is when people go, I know it, then stop and ask, am I doing that? How am I using that? And how is, how is that working for me right now? So resilience is trending, as they say. But for you, it's not recent. It's not a fad and it's not a buzzword. I think it's fair to say that a discussion with you about resilience wouldn't be complete without talking about what happened to you on that hot summer afternoon 25 years ago. Yes, I think that's probably where the, you know, the the change in my life came, obviously the most unexpected, the most sudden change and the most dramatic change that I experienced. And yeah, as a 12-year-old, um, I was cooling off in a backyard pool with my younger brother who was um, 10 and a couple of other younger boys. And being that bit older and um, being the only girl, I didn't want anything to do with them. And so I thought a far more fun thing to do would be just to climb up on the edge and dive in. And, and it was a very familiar pool to me. I'd done this time and time again and I just kept climbing up and diving in and getting yelled at to stop and and you know being so invincible that nothing would ever happen to me and yeah I was a perfectionist so I wanted to make a perfect dive and so I stood on the edge and I pondered for a moment and I thought how can I do this and I thought if I hold my feet together as I dive in then I won't splash 
And I thought, God, I've figured this out. This is great. And it was like I'd solved the world's problems in that moment. And so I did. I took a deep breath and I dived in and it felt exactly like any other dive. And and that was until I went to try and swim to the surface and I realised I couldn't move. And it's a very quickly panic set in because here I was at the bottom of the pool, unable to get the attention of anyone to help me and holding my breath. And so I held my breath as long as I could and obviously it felt like an eternity and, and I got to the point where I couldn't hold, literally physically could not hold my breath any longer. And so I had to breathe in. And so my lungs filled with water and I blacked out. And um, eventually my brother realised I wasn't joking and he actually pulled me out of the pool. And, and it was later that night um, after two ambulances and a helicopter um, airlift that I was told in intensive care that I'd actually broken my neck and drowned and that I'd never walk again. And, uh, you know, I literally felt my life was over in that moment. And... Um, and yeah, I spent a, a very long time in hospital, and uh, and certainly I didn't accept what had happened to me. And I think being a going into high school, going into teenage years, is challenging, you know, for the best part. But you know, having those extra challenges and really, you know, struggling to accept it and being quite angry and bitter and resentful, and and ultimately it was it was my own it was my own doing. So the person I was most angry at was myself. Um, which, you know, can be very self-destructive and I did take on some very destructive habits along that way and so I I found myself, um, you know, getting completely written off, um, getting drunk and stoned a lot and then that triggering, uh, you know, a downward spiral as well, which I hid very well from people. So that was, you know, I guess the most confronting change that I've had and, and, and over the years people had always asked, how did I turn it around? How did I become the most positive, ambitious people person they know um so eventually I sort of thought there might be something in it and I reverse engineered what I did and captured that in you know in the book how to be resilient and um share that now with people around the world just really practical strategies and 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 having a very very different perspective on resilience which has certainly um triggered some discussions along the way it's like the world has caught up to you you've been working and thinking about this whole issue of resilience and acceptance for such a long time it's been such an important part of your life and here we are as a as, as a community that's concerned about leadership and the development of of the workplace all of a sudden talking about something that's so important to you it, yeah it is quite interesting and, and it's funny because I didn't I didn't even have the word resilience associated to it um, it was something that a, a mentor a few years ago she captured it because uh, I, I was interested in in being a trainer and helping other people but I wanted I was I was hiding I was literally hiding from myself and hiding from um, I guess where my true value was and I didn't recognize the value in it and I was going to be a customer service trainer or something like that and and she said look you just you have to get out from behind that and she was the one that labeled resilience as what I did and then it's interesting because you know we know that once you see something you see it everywhere Um, and I guess it's been there but I think certainly in recent times with the pace of change and things like that it's become to the surface a lot more but as we're seeing a lot you know a lot of companies are investing in resilience programs but what they label as a resilience program is a band-aid stress management solution Um, to me uh, you know a mindfulness program or any type of like you know yoga classes at lunchtime is not resilience it's a well-being program, absolutely, and that's a, that that it plays a part. It has its own value. It has its own value, but it's it's a band-aid solution. It's so true that there's two sides of this coin when when we're talking about a hot topic. There's the hot topic, 
and there's buzzwords. The hot topic side can be seen as a worthy issue finally getting the attention it deserves, whereas a buzzword suggests that an important topic is being watered down and treated as a superficial fad. Uh, What's the danger here? There was a great discussion about that last night. It's been quite interesting because I probably find that I don't even use the word resilience a lot anymore in what I describe what I do because there is that association with resilience. They go, yeah, we know what it is. We're, we're doing that. Um, so I had I had almost hidden from it. And obviously the book, How to Be Resilient, that was named and that was all done and sort of in the planning 18 months ago. And probably these days, I, I, I don't know, maybe I might have called it something different. And so now I, I, I label what I do is I teach people how to turn change and adversity into an asset and an opportunity. Because to me... Resilience isn't about, geez, this all went wrong. How do we cope? Coping's the band-aid version. Coping, it is. And, and, and no amount of coping strategies is going to get people to be more effective, more productive and more engaged and have a better rounded quality of life. So I like to teach people how to be in a position for when the stuff does happen and let's face it, face it things go wrong all the time. It's a matter of, you know, when, not if. And I like people to be in that position. So when something goes wrong, like I almost get excited about things going wrong because... you've got the tools. Yeah, and because it's like there's an opportunity in this. What can I do with it? Whereas some things going wrong for other people, and again, it's all relative to what's happening in people's lives. Something that can be insignificant for one person can pull the whole, you know, the rug out from other people. So, yeah, for me, it's all about it's a proactive strategy. It's digging the well before you're thirsty. Um, that's how I like to look at it. And I guess that's where there is, a, you know, I guess a... A polarity, um, a, you know, a polarised view um, compared to some of the other stuff that's out there at the moment. But I'm finding it's landing really well because people have tried some of this stuff and they see it doesn't work. So you work a lot with leaders and organisations. When you see a workplace that is lacking in resilience, for want of a better word, what do you see? What does an organisation that lacks resilience look like? Some of the things that come up a lot is just a general toxic energy. So there can be a lot of gossip, there can be a lot of unrest, there can be a little, a lot of um, discontent, a lot of disrespect, um, there can be a real disconnect um, between the general um, workforce and some of the leaders in the workforce. Um, you'll start to see a lot of absenteeism, even worse, you'll see a lot of presenteeism. Um, you'll see people that... What's just presenteeism? Presenteeism. So presenteeism is when people are at work, but they're not productive. And this is a big one. This is becoming more and more apparent, and especially with technology. I've, I've, I've worked in places before where people were physically there, but they spent most of their time on eBay or planning the next holiday. So I've never heard that term before, but it makes complete sense. You'll, you know what? You're going to see it everywhere now. <laughs> <laughs> it's, on the, it's, it's been activated now. So they're the kind of things that I see. It'll be um, obviously these days like cultural engagement surveys, uh, again, another hot thing. So a lot of the times uh, organisations that come to me have had a cultural engagement survey that has had some pretty alarming results. And the big problem is, is that they're, they're only communicating with people once a year. There's this formal appraisal process that is more about compliance than about personally developing people. And even the language, performance management is not, a, I, don't, I don't believe that's the right word. Um, we want to be having development conversations with people. You know, we, we want people to be growing. We want people to be part of something. We don't want people to feel that they're under the microscope, you know, about what they do every day 
I think it's a big thing to have those continual conversations and more informal conversations. Uh, some of the things I suggest with leaders is, is you know, at least once a week is, you know, just as, even if it's, a you know, over a coffee or even just, you know, standing by the photocopier anytime, five minutes, ask their team a few questions. One of it is, you know, what are you working on this week? Uh, what have you found the most challenging in the past week? Um, what do you foresee is going to be the challenges in the week ahead and how can I best support you? Um, and by having that open conversation and feeling that leaders are accessible and present, because that's another thing that's happening a lot, that people feel that leaders um, are separate. And, you know, and the other thing is leadership is not about a role. Leadership's an energy. Leadership's um, is an influence. It's not a title. That's fantastic stuff. Uh, around the value of cultural surveys themselves, is it a red flag for you when you hear that an organisation's doing a cultural survey? Is that a concern in itself or is there a really positive place for them? Because my, my thoughts are going in, in terms of if an organisation is doing a cultural survey once a year or even once every six months, there's the tendency to think, well, we're, we're doing our bit for the culture. And it's not something that's part of everything they do, all of the conversations they have. Is Are those cultural surveys a red flag for you or can they be a, a good thing, a, a part of a healthy package? You've, you've wrapped it up perfectly there as part of a healthy package. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's a good thing because you have to have some kind of way to measure. You've got to be able to compare in some way and that's how they make business decisions. That's how anything in business is decided. There needs to be um, a business case for something and then if also then they go well look okay 12 months ago with this cultural engagement survey and what we found and this is the common things that I get all the time there's issues with trust around leadership there's issues around well-being and there's issues around communication three things that I keep getting over and over again that come up in all of these surveys so that's all well and good to say yes we recognize that what they end up doing is they'll go okay let's do a course let's throw a training course we've heard this person's great we'll do that um then you do need to somehow measure that. So if 12 months time, they can say, well, you know what, we recognise, we, those are the three areas we had challenges. We've invested in these programs. I say quite loosely programs because they're generally a one-day workshop where people get bombarded with an inc incredible amount of information. Uh, they go back and they don't do anything. And while they're at the course, that they're so worried about what they're missing at work that they're, again, presenteeism, they're not even taking in anything they were there for. So there needs to be an element of is what we are doing to try and address the problem working. But if that's their only measure, is their annual performance agreement and a cultural survey, then absolutely that's a red flag that they are just doing things for compliance and then do not have a genuine commitment to creating a really great culture for their workplace. You, you talk about programs as if it's almost a swear word. Is that the easy option for organisations to identify a problem and say, well, I've heard, as you said, I've heard this guy's good, this consultant's great, let's get her in and um, now we've fixed the problem? Definitely. I think that people will go to um, a course, they'll get a certificate to say, I'm an effective time manager. <laughs> I, I went and did a course, I'm resilient. So I think that's the thing. For me, I, a, a true program is what needs to happen. You know, one-off stuff doesn't work. You know, we need an element of repetition and hearing and doing things in a different way to embed things. And so I am look, I am putting together programs more and more for organisations uh, rather than just going and doing a, a one-hour workshop. For me, it's creating those multiple touch points because people do get caught up in life and so having more bite-sized pieces spread out over a period of time is far more effective than going to a one-day workshop because we all hear it people go oh you know what if they just learn one thing that'll be great 
But if we could get them to learn one thing out of every hour that they are doing a program, then that would be great. Whereas if they go and they learn one thing out of a whole day, you know, really it's all about impact. Um, and again, a business case has to be, is this, um, is there a return on investment on this? So yeah, certainly uh, true programs and being innovative, you know, not just doing the same old, same old. Um, and the other thing is, is that I guess where I'm finding I'm, I'm becoming busier and busier is that I'm not an academic and I'm not a psychologist, um, that people have gone and done these sort of I guess backed by science is another thing that gets thrown out so much and it's like how about we just get backed by life um and 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 that's where people go like your stuff is practical people can do this right away they don't have to go and do another course to understand how to implement it so there's certainly a shortfall between information implementation and and that's where I think having a a true program that's around implementation measurement then that's where you're going to get really true results Tell us a little bit more about your business. It's obviously predated the book by by quite a distance. How did it come about? What do you do? Who are your clients? Tell us all about it. As with any business, it's evolved a lot over the years. Um, so Resilience for Results is the name of my business. And um, I think, again, it's one of those things I wanted to make sure that I, I do what it says on the can. Um, so it's all about resilience, but it's not about, hey, here's these band-aids, let's all feel great about ourselves for five minutes and go back to life. It's all about results. And to me, there's no better way than to turn um, something going wrong into um, into a positive than getting tangible results. So that was the, the thing. I started out just doing speaking. I was one of these people, again, it, it, when we start businesses, we are too scared to actually niche, even though we know we need to niche. Uh, so I was doing that whole everything to everyone. And, and, and resilience is something that it's got such broad application. And I still get asked all the time to do things in different areas, but I have to sort of stay in my lane as much as I can. So I started out just doing keynote speaking. Um, so just going and doing, you know, 45 minute hour talks. And, but for me, a keynote for me is an, it's an interactive keynote. It's not just go and have a chat. It's, it's giving people really, really tangible stuff they can take away because there's so many times people go and hear a great story or they hear something inspiring and they go out uplifted. But if there's nothing they can take away to implement, then there's no lasting change. And I'm all about lasting change. So that evolved into workshops and uh, now some personal coaching. Um, but the, the the principles in the book actually were pretty much from the beginning of my business. It was essentially a, a keynote that got turned into a book and I did a, an e-book, tested the content. I guess I sort of made some really good business decisions along the way by proof of concept um, before then going investing in the book, which I actually crowdfunded which was an amazing experience too. So getting people to actually put their money into it because so many people have great business ideas and they have all these people around them saying, that's a great idea. But until people actually put money to something, then... They're not invested. They're not invested. So, so yeah, so it's evolved over the years and, and over time I've, I've really narrowed down. I, I've worked a lot in the business sector and I feel that working with leaders is is my best value and working with leaders is is the best place because it's that dropping the pebble in the pond um, I can't be everywhere but if we can equip people to then become that influence and, and and make those changes then we can have far-reaching impact so most of the clients I work with these days are I'm finding a lot of government because obviously government um, the public service culture is is very resistant to change there's a lot of entitlement mentality so, and which is probably probably one of my personal missions in life is to banish entitlement mentality. So I do a lot of stuff there and getting them to engage with the change process. I work a lot with corporates and probably one of my most favourites is, is working with leadership teams around elite sport. And I'm really passionate about elite sport and um, and, 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 and results and, and I'm very competitive. So I like to sort of see, you know, how can you get an edge 
I've got a million questions as you talk. <laughs> Tell me, let's go back. You, you hit something that's really interesting. Why is the public service so prone or even more prone than, than most industries to the attitude or the mentality of entitlement? What I find most is there's been a distinct lack of accountability. People have been in the same job over and over again or they've been in the same job for 20 years. And they own that job. They right? own that job. Also, there's a there's a it's a process thereby each year you do your annual appraisal, you tick all the boxes and you get a pay increment or you get a level increment. So it's everything in the public service has been linked to time rather than results. And going out in business, that has probably been the thing that I'm most passionate about. I think the whole model probably of employment globally is that everything's linked to time, not results. So that's been a big thing. So people get very comfortable. Uh, I think a lot of the time too, there's there's been, a again, the entitlement mentality that people only do what's in their job description um, and that people there's a culture of doing as little as you can and and it all sounds very stereotypical but I've, I've worked in places I've worked with a lot of different clients across across all levels of government and and I guess even universities and and I certainly see that that's the thing it's almost like people are untouchable um, there's as I said no accountability um, and also what happens a lot is then if someone does have there is a conversation about their performance then they say they're being harassed it's and I've seen it a lot where people, they will know inside out their EBA, every single thing they're entitled to, but they also forget that they have a contract and a contract is an exchange of value. And I've been touching on this quite a bit lately and I, I was I was a bit hesitant to throw it out there for a while because I knew it was going to probably rattle a few cages. But it's a contract is an exchange of value and I'm huge on responsibility. People as an employee have a responsibility to deliver a service to an organisation. What I see in the public service is that jobs have been protected that are no longer viable and I've seen how it's done and and also too they lose sight of the fact that they're providing a service. So there's a lot of um, element of being comfortable, they've not um, they've, they've not had to really compete or fight for their jobs and so I let them know that you touched on earlier you know the move towards casual contract uh, there aren't there aren't indefinite tenures anymore and this is this is not isolated to an industry, a city, a country. It's a global thing. People don't have offices. They're hot desk. They work remotely. Uh, this is the way of the world. And, and as I'd say to people, particularly in this sector, that if they don't start to embrace that, if they don't start to focus on the value they provide, then they're going to be left behind. And with that type of work ethic, they're going to find it very difficult to find anything new. So tell me about your process, whether it's with someone in the public service or any industry. When you start working with an individual leader, what do you do? It's about learning about them. So for me, I look at my role as I'm a doctor. I need to learn so much. Um, and to me, there's not a one size fits all. It's a matter of learning a lot, asking lots of specific questions to really put your finger on what are the key areas that they're struggling with. And this is where I think a lot of people have made a mistake in the past is they go, I've got this answer. They, they, they know the answer before they know the problem. So for me, I, I look at it, it's, it's a real fact-finding kind of mission and it's getting to know them and getting to really understand, well, and, and I guess even some basic coaching principles. It's like, where do you want to be? Where are you now? Where are your roadblocks? And how can we speed up this process to get you where you are? 
Uh, and a lot of that does come down to accountability um, and a lot of it is strategy. So it's working out that individual plan um, and, and, I, and I enjoy that because you get to really get inside people's thought processes and and then start to put out that plan and keep that accountability. And and really I think that, you know, working one-on-one um, is, is labour-intensive as it can be at times. Um, you know, you really know that you're getting some lasting change. So... And, and, and that could look like, you know, getting together for a conversation once a month, once a week. It could be recommending some resources for people to work with, obviously giving them some activities to work with. Um, but massive accountability is, is the thing I'm finding. And especially in leaders, like I'm working with CEOs and they've got everyone accountable to them, but they don't have that level of accountability to them to someone greater. That Some of them have a chairman of a board, but that's not the same as having someone that is they cross paths with every day that's checking in with them. So I'm finding now I'm starting to get, you know, clients that are CEOs that are needing that conversation to hold them to account. You know, one of my clients, you know, I sent him, I sent a text message the next day. So how'd you go with that plan that you were going to do? So once they know that someone is checking in on checking up on them, it makes a huge difference. So um, it's, it's, it's just finding those things. What's the, what, what do they want to do? Where are they now? What's the gap? How do we speed it up? Again, I've got a million questions from everything that you've just said, but it's so true what you say there. The cynical or negative view of people who do coaching or program development is that if you if your only tool is a hammer, if the whole world looks like a nail and we've got people trying to squeeze everyone into their, their program that they've, they've developed and, and they think or they know is wonderful. And even though everyone is different and everyone has their specific needs and you're trying to find their strengths so they can let their strengths shine and find their weaknesses so they can either work on them or mitigate them, there must be, after all the work you've done, emerging a pattern. Can you think about a number of categories where it's two or five or seven of categories that leaders that you work with fit into? Is that starting to emerge for you? As I touched on earlier, accountability is a huge issue. The other thing that people are really finding is there's overwhelm. So there's so much pressure to be the perfect husband, wife, parent, uh, do everything. And so they're, they're big ones. But if I'm going back to the, you know, the, the core principles that I share through you know, the process of um, resilience for results, again, responsibility is a big one, is, is people actually t- taking ownership of it. Um, and especially as a leader, because there's so much you know, you, good leadership, a lot of it's delegation as well. Um, but there's certain things you can't delegate. You, know, you can't delegate your own, um, your own success as far as that goes. So yeah, certainly there's a lot of issues around responsibility. Um, there's massive issues around time management. You know, time management, again, I hate the phrase um, because it's all about effective energy management and effective personal management. Um, and obviously there's a lot of background to how people do that well as well. So they're probably the things that I'm finding the most. Um, and a big thing with leaders is they're always visible and they need to be very effective at putting the divide between their personal life and their home life, their personal life, sorry, and their work life. Because as soon as they walk into an office every day, all eyes are on them. They're being analysed. They're like, okay, what kind of a mood's this guy in? You know, can he, is he approachable? Is he not? And they read them and people read them and go, is he telling us everything? You know, should we be worried about what's happening here more than we are? And so they're, they're under the microscope all the time. And so that's a very difficult thing for a lot of them to deal with. And so how do they effectively protect their own energy and also um, find, find oh, I won't say find the time, because we've all got the same amount of time. It's, it's make the time and protect that time. I had one client where I said to him, you want to play golf? I said, well, when's the last time you played golf? Well, I haven't. 
Um, when would you like to play golf? Monthly? Okay, well, you don't miss a board meeting, do you? No, we'll schedule your golf in the same way that you do your board meeting and you protect it the same way. So it's it's about um, you know, establishing their personal boundaries as well and, and, and being very, very accountable to them. Are all leaders aware of the extent to which they are under the microscope, the extent to which when they walk in the office, all eyes are on them, whether it's for small things like what time they arrived or big things like what mood are they in, who are they meeting with, when was the last time they were with the board? Are leaders really aware of that? From the, I guess the leaders I'm working with probably are because they're the ones that are actually reaching out and having these conversations. So I'm sure there's a lot that aren't, a lot that are quite oblivious and they're in their own little world and, and that's probably the biggest part of the problem is that they are in their own little world and they're not engaging and they're not realising the impact and even little things. So we, we talk about a lot like work-life work, work life balance and flexible working and unless a leader demonstrates that themselves, then no one in a workplace is going to feel that they can do that because a lot of the time there's, there's policies around flexible working but if they don't see anybody else around them doing it, they don't feel that they can. So that's it's a big se- one. It seems as though flexible work conditions are the revolution that is inevitable. But is it inevitable? It seems like it makes so much sense. I work from home. My wife works from home one day a week. It doesn't mean we do any less work. It just means that it works better in our life. It seems inevitable, yet we hear so often of workplaces that resist it. Why do they resist it? Is it inevitable? And what can we do to change? What I feel is the reason that there is a high level of resistance to it is is, is what I've touched on about there's there's a almost an obsession and it's been always been the way that things are linked to time rather than output. And and as a, as a, if if I was to employ a handful of staff, then for me, I would be going. This is what I want you to achieve this week. I'll pay you based on that. If you can do it in ten hours, and you can take the other thirty off, I don't mind. Um, so that's a big thing: is that they feel that if they can't see them, then the work's not being done. So again, that comes down to trust, um, and also to again to be an effective leader. I feel is to let go as well. You you can't micromanage people and that's what a lot of people feel they're being done um, but flexible working conditions it, it, it is inevitable even if you look at if you live in a major city so if you're living as we're talking here in Brisbane or Sydney Melbourne um, that you know even just with traffic with a commute it's not practical to have everybody rocking up at nine o'clock and heading out at five o'clock it just creates chaos uh, and again every person's energy cycles are different I, I know that I'm not great in the afternoon so I schedule all of my important stuff in the morning or I work in the evening. That's how it is. Other people are going to be great in an afternoon. Some people are going to be fantastic. Some people love to go in and work at six o'clock in the morning. I used to love going in early because there's no distractions. You get stuff done. There's the, you get stuff done. So I think that's the thing is if they've got to work at what the advantages are of flexible working. There has to be issues around. There has to be um, people letting go around trust and, and really shifting the goalpost to being about results rather than time. Tell me about the process of writing the book. You've already hinted that the book essentially was a keynote speech and it became a book, but I'm sure there was a lot of work between the first step and the the release of the book. Are you a good writer? Are you a disciplined writer? Tell us all about the process. It's really interesting because I always said I hated writing. And if I reflect back even, you know, back into my school days, uh, year 10, like I was brilliant at English, actually a very good writer, but I didn't enjoy it. 
and I avoided it even to the point where I did my you know my year 11 and 12 courses and I did all the sciences because I could do a prac reporting class rather than writing a thousand word essay um, and I never really wrote um, and so that was a real big challenge for me and it was it was a mindset barrier I knew once I got started that I could write really well and um, that was great but I had to get over the fear the, the thing that I didn't like it so and what I did was when I first started speaking I had some really great advice that said that you needed to have again takeaway tangibles people need stuff they can implement so for me it was a matter of going yes I've got a really compelling story but what are the key lessons that people can take away so I did I, I sort of broke it down and I'm like okay what are the key things I did along the way and reverse engineered the process and then I found I had you know quite a few things and then I was like oh I reckon I can make this into a you know, into a, an acrostic kind of thing. And my actual system spells out resilient. And, and and it's not like I just thought, oh, I'll just make stuff up to throw in there. Um, as you sort of feel that some things are, they think, oh, 90% of it's good. And then it's just like, geez, you just want to try, try and make the word. Forced it in the end. Yeah, forced it at the end. So no, I did that. And so I, I wrote down the key principles. And so I kept it really simple to start with. And then when I went into doing the, the, the full-blown version of the book, then I wanted it to be uh, more of a, a self-coaching tool. So what I did was I, I said, okay, these are the key learnings. How can people apply it? And what I've done is at the end of every section in the book, I've got a series of exercises that people can use. So that's how it's come about. And then that comes about, it translates into coaching, it translates into running workshops um, because it's all about the application. So that's how it came about. Um, I wasn't disciplined at all. I, I wanted to try and, you know, give myself lots of, um, I scheduled it in, but then I didn't do it. And the interesting thing was, is when I did the first part of the book, I did it when I drank a lot of red wine and, um, and I don't drink anymore. And I was really scared about how I was going to be able to finish the book. Um, because I had this thing, and I think it was Hemingway that said, you know, write drunk, edit sober. And, um, and I realized it wasn't that red wine made me creative, it just made me less analytical. And that was a huge revelation for me. So then I got to the point where I just, I started to journal every day. So by keeping a journal every day, I, I become habitually writing and reflecting. And once I started that process, then finishing off the book was quite simple. The other thing I found is that I did it all typing on the computer and I hit a roadblock. And then once I printed it out and went outside and sat in the sun with a pen and did it all by hand, it all came together. Really? So, yeah. There's, I don't think anything beats just a, you know, a paper and pen. And that certainly finished the book off for me. They're fantastic tips for writing a book. So where can people get their hands on the book? So the book is likely to be in a local bookstore. Um, it's certainly been distributed by all of the online major retailers, so Amazon, Book Depository, all of those ones. Um, or people can buy it directly through my website at howtoberesilient.com. Of course, the bonus there is I'll be able to pop a little note and sign it for them and send that, which you can't get from Amazon. Um, so that's the ways to do it. And also, if people do have the chance to come and see me speak live or um, be in one of my workshops then I usually have them. And even if people come across me um, in, by meeting me, um, there's a high probability there'll be a copy of my book in the bag. I, I try not to leave home without one because you never know when someone might would like one. And I will, of course, put a link to your website in the Lessons Learned page from this podcast. So it'll be easy to find. So from the birth of the concept of writing the book until the day it was published, what's the time frame? The concept started, it was early 2012. And the crowdfunding was 2014, the beginning. And the actual probably end of writing was probably about March 
2015. The physical copy, first physical copy of the book was in my hands at the end of June 2015. So it's still... It's a process. Yeah, but, but, but probably the biggest learning I have through the whole process is I made it a hell of a lot harder than it needed to be. I know for the next books that I could, I could seriously smash it out in a three-day weekend. I, I, I've learned so many lessons and the reason that it took me so long is there was things I needed to learn in the process. Um, which is great. And as I said, to me, everything happens for a reason. Um, and, yeah, the lessons have been amazing. And I'm really looking forward to – I've got plans for the sort of next two or three. Now, you mentioned in your speech last night, which was, by the way, brilliant. You have a real gift for capturing an audience. You said that you, you now see your accident as one of the positive things to happen in your life, professionally, socially, and personally. Tell us a little bit about that. I got to the point in life where, again, the proverbial crossroads that I think we find ourselves in all the time. And I found myself faced with dealing with that anger I had towards myself because I really was so unhappy about where I am. And someone did ask me last night if I could turn back time, would I change it? And, and as I said last night, if it was in the first five years after that accident, absolutely, I would have given anything to turn it around and go back to life before and and to not have um, a disability or anything like that but now as I said it's been my greatest gift but it did it did take that decision uh, and it was ultimately a decision do I let it ruin my life do I let it make my life better and just taking ownership and and I, I do I have a lot of um, again discussions I'll say loosely with people that go you know it's not that simple and I go actually it is people overcomplicate things everything in life comes down to a choice and you don't have to know the you know exactly what you want to achieve in the end you just have to know that you want and deserve something better for your life and setting that intention and deciding that it opens up all possibility you also mentioned last night that there is a a dangerous myth that resilience is something that you either have or you don't and you say that that's wrong like so many things you can develop resilience now and you also have said that you like people to be able to take things away with them so for those who have been listening to us chat away for 45 50 minutes what can you give them that they can take away and, and put into practice today? What I would like people to take away from this is a simple three-step process that I use anytime something goes wrong. So if it's just a starting point is when something goes wrong to say, thank you, I'm grateful for this opportunity. You can't feel bad about anything. Uh, you can't feel bad about something you're grateful for. Um, always look for the lessons in things. Um, what do people say? There's, there's no, it's not failure, it's feedback. So always ask what's the lesson in things. And third of all, always look for ways to be able to share with other people. If there was one daily practice that I can recommend people to do, it is the act of journaling. And even if they start with a simple journal that is asking the question, what was the best thing that happened today? It's a great question to ask their children as well, if for those that are parents, is to start to condition yourself to look for the good. Because ultimately, you get in life what you look for. And, and, and to me, resilience is all about conditioning yourself to look for the good and not get held back by the bad. And if there is the bad, then you have the strategies to be able to turn it into a positive as quickly as possible. So these things take practice. There's lots of exercises in the book and I've, I've likened it to going to the gym. You know, we have to go three times a week to build and maintain our physical strength and resilience or something like that. So it is a skill that can be developed. Yes, some people have a natural aptitude for it and they've got a head start, but it is something you can learn from scratch, but it does take practice. Stacey, what's the future for you and your business? I have some pretty big, big visions for what I'd like to do. Um, 
someone's asked me if I have a bucket list and on that is being interviewed by Oprah and Ellen um, is probably my biggest thing. I really want to, I really have a desire to take this globally and I think we've never been in a better opportunity with technology and, you know, global interconnectedness to be able to do that. What I feel is my complete benefit is that I have that amazing personal narrative to be able to tie lessons to and so many people say they could get up and talk about these principles and no one would listen to it but because I have that personal story is there so I, I'm really keen for this book to be a, a global um, reference and when I first wrote it I, I said in the future I would like people to have my book mentioned in the same category as Think and Grow Rich and The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People and, and things like that. So I have really big visions for um, for what I'm going to do and I have complete belief that that happens. But ultimately it's up to me. It's my responsibility to continually share, you know, content with the world and, and, and to be very open and vulnerable and authentic about the things that I experience and the things I learn and, and that in turn gives per- other people permission to do the same. So I think that that's my, that's my I guess, my global duty as a, great global citizen uh, and I'm really looking forward to that so yeah certainly uh, certainly global I'm not a huge fan of traveling but I'll have to get over that (laughs) are you good at applying your own advice to yourself I find myself having to consciously stop and say Stacey what would you tell one of your clients to do right now Uh, so I do have to remind myself um, but I'm passionate about like I absolutely passionate I live and breathe everything I do Um, so and as far as growing a business it's another area I'm really really passionate about is is like creating successful business is the best way that I feel that we can make an impact and change our world for the better uh, and becoming leaders in that way becoming people of influence so I, I, I do sometimes take some reminding um, but I certainly do take my own advice and you know and I've been through some really crazy ups and downs and even even personally at the moment you know I've got I say to people the highs get higher the lows get lower um, but then with that I can say I can assure you my shit works <laughs> so I was watching you last night you were very busy you were engaged it it looked it was exhausting to watch you gave a speech you were talking to people afterwards people want to come and tell you their story then you go and sign books then you have a late night because everyone wants to talk to you and then some guy comes with his microphones and interviews you today. This must be an exhausting time of your life, but are there more positives and negatives coming from it? Absolutely, there's more positives. I I thrive on it. Um, and I find that I'm probably not sleeping as much as I need to and I'm I'm probably riding high on adrenaline and I listen to my body like I look after my body very well um also I don't I don't believe I'm going to get sick or anything like that but I've I've touched on and I do in the book as well is when you're in 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 a place of you know inspired connectedness um then you your energy actually becomes limitless I, I find I could I could do that all day now and not get tired um, in the past, I used to get really, really exhausted by it, but I've gotten used to how to protect my own energy. But I just love what I do. I, I thrive on people sharing. I thrive on the looks that I get. I, looking, sitting up on a stage and looking out into an audience and seeing the nods and making the eye contact and just seeing things land, like, that is the greatest gift that I, I can get. And uh, I guess it becomes almost a bit of an addiction. I, I love that, um, the, the ability to do that. So, yes, it... It can be exhausting, but I I, I, cho- I choose I choose again a decision um, is I, I choose it to be energizing rather than exhausting. Well, I have four last questions for you. I always finish my interviews with these same questions. Are you ready? Ready. 
Tell me about the Saturday night you most look forward to, a big party with lots of people you know or an intimate dinner with your closest friends. Can I alternate? Well, you have to tell me which Saturday night you would most look forward to. What would I most look forward to? Um, probably going out and, and meeting lots of people. I'm not a party. I'm not a party person by any stretch, but I, I love meeting new people. So I think that that's good. And we can, we can have the dinner on the Friday night. Good. Excellent answer. Question number two. Are you more likely to get bogged down in the detail or caught daydreaming? Caught daydreaming. I'm a massive daydreamer and I, 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 I probably lose. Okay, I don't lose. Um, I have to rephrase that. I don't lose a lot of time, but I spend a lot of time daydreaming. Um, I could sit for an hour in the middle of the day and just get lost in thought. And, and in a way, it's probably like a meditative process. But yeah, daydreaming is definitely, and I'm not, I'm not a detailed person. If I get into detail, I'll make a plan and I'll never do it. Now, the way that you make decisions, are you a slave to rational thought or do you make decisions based on feeling? I'm, a, I'm certainly an intuitive decision maker. Um, in the past, I really struggled with decision making. I used to say it was because I was a Libran and I couldn't just make a decision, the balance, the scales. Um, and I did. I used to always look for external stuff. But now, and it was actually came to me through um, reading Think and Grow Rich, where it says that decision making, making quick decisions um, is, is, is a huge key to success. And by learning that, I, I started to learn that I needed to make quick decisions. And yet, definitely, I'm hugely intuitive. Um, and for the most part, obviously, you, you, sometimes things you know fly under the radar. But for the most part, it hasn't let me down. And last question. You're going on a road trip. Do you plan the route, book the hotels and know exactly where you're going? Or do you just get in the car and drive? I like to know where I'm going to stay. But I don't plan the days in between. I, I've travelled quite a bit and... Um, as I said, I, I do. I like to have the, the security of knowing where I'm going to sleep, and and that's probably more part because of having a disability and needing particular access requirements. If it wasn't for that, I probably I'd sleep in a car or on the beach. I wouldn't care. Um, so yeah, I, I love the element of spontaneity, but I also have, I guess, an underlying need for some kind of security as well. So no, I don't like to plan too much. I like to just go with go with the flow and see where I feel on the day. Stacey, thank you so much for your time. I only got your book last night, but I cannot wait to read it. And uh, chatting with you today was a real delight. Thanks for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, I hope that your listeners get a lot out of it as well and have as much fun as we did. What I love most about that chat with Stacey is her clarity of purpose. She is so clear about what she wants to achieve, the message she has for the world. She is determined to ensure that wherever and to whomever she speaks, she leaves them with practical advice on turning adversity in their life into opportunity. And she is a living, breathing, smiling, jet-setting example of someone who's mastered the skill. As always, I'll share the lessons I took from this episode on the Lessons Learned page from the podcast. You'll find it on the Team Guru website. That's teams with an S dot guru forward slash podcast. I'll also share some links to where you can find Stacey and her book. And keep an eye out on the Team Guru website for the next episode on this, my mission to bring the theory of team and leadership development to life. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.